Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For those of you of Global Wall Street, working on a Friday and reading into the weekend, this is without question the most important interview Bloomberg will do on the state of global fiscal policy. Vitor Gaspar doesn't get the ink Gita Gopinath gets at the IMF, but trust me, his fiscal monitor is a critical document in these times. Dr. Gaspar joins us now. Vitor, I want you to give me an update on your confidence that we can expand by trillions our debt over the justification that interest rates are so low. Do you buy that concept? Yes, I do, uh, Tom. So what we emphasize in this uh, blog that I've just put out together with Gita Gopinath is that global debt is at this point in time at record levels. Never in history has global public debt been so high. It is now above 100% of world GDP. It is so high because we're facing a crisis like no other. And in that context, the fiscal response has been very quick and unprecedented. Just to give you an idea, in the last few months, the response of fiscal policy is bigger than during the global financial crisis. If you take together 2008, 9, and 10, so in a few months, we're above the response of three years during the global financial crisis. That was absolutely appropriate to support, to extend lifelines to households and firms made vulnerable by the crisis. Right. This enormous level of debt, Tom, this enormous level of debt is, in a sense, compensated in terms of impact on the budget by these very low interest rates that you're talking about. And well, this is but, but I want to, Dr. Grant, I, I don't mean to interrupt, sir, but because of time, I want to cut to the chase. We have Dr. El Arian on with us in the next hour. He is acclaimed for speaking of T decisions. What is the T decision we are all going to make two and three and five years out after we count up the trillions of dollars of debt? What is the T decision down the road for political authorities as they look at endless debt? So I, I would not put the issue that way. Nominal interest rates and so debt service costs are relatively low as a percentage of GDP, even with these very high levels of debt, because inflation and inflation expectations are very low. And at this point in time, as uh, Gita Gopinath, my colleague, emphasized yesterday, we're more concerned about too low inflation than too high inflation. The uh, epidemic has uh, boosted uh, precautionary savings. Uh, investment will be prudent. And so for a while, we are going to have a situation where savings uh, ex exceeds investment. So our balance of risks uh, points to the fact that premature withdrawal of fiscal support 
is a more pressing danger than the high levels of debt. And that's our balance at the moment. Vitor, there's a question of how companies, how nations are spending the money that they're pumping into their economies as they try to support everything as it gets back up and running. How good a job are nations doing uh, at supporting companies that are viable in the longer term rather than just the zombies that are going to die out even if they are supported in the short term? So uh, as I was saying, the short-term priority The number one priority is public uh, health, and that requires fiscal support to vulnerable households, vulnerable firms, and those uh, interventions should be uh, regarded as lifelines. As the situation normalizes, as we pass the phase of the great lockdown, as the economies open gradually, we have, in a sense, to pivot towards uh, policies that uh, facilitate the reallocation of resources. And so it is necessary to pivot from support to jobs, to support to people, from uh, blanket uh, lending to firms, to a much more discriminating uh, approach. And again, as uh, Gita Gopinath uh, said uh, yesterday, it's important that the intervention by the government includes capital type instruments, equity participations, uh, perhaps even partial uh, nationalizations, so that the issues of solvency can be tackled appropriately and the natural restructuring of the economy actually takes place. Vidor, this is Philosophy Friday. We hear a lot of big ideas, and this has been an era of big ideas as people try to reimagine what society will look like on the other side. There is a question of how good a job in the here and now governments currently are doing, how optimistic you are based on what you have seen, that they will implement the policies as you're talking about. Are you optimistic about that, or are you sort of doubling down on these messages because you think that they're not getting through? So we are actually quite impressed by how speedy and how effective the uh, interventions by governments have been in the face of the great lockdown. We have put out uh, an annex to the World Economic Outlook with fiscal perspectives, and we have an online uh, document that reviews policies followed by more than 50 countries. What we see is unprecedented action. We see $11 trillion uh, of uh, measures. Many of those measures are uh, measures with above-the-line impact on the budget. They have been crucial to support firms, to support households. Now, the situation is very difficult. We face radical uncertainty, and the first priority is public health. The first priority is to control the epidemic. Why? Because only by controlling the epidemic are we going to be able to reduce uncertainty and so to create conditions for the economy uh, to pick up in a sustainable way, for uh, investment to pick up, and for the transition to a new uh, model of sustainable and inclusive growth to take hold. So we're not out of the woods yet. A lot remains to be done. But up to now, 
the ability of governments to deliver timely, targeted, and temporary uh, measures have been uh, quite impressive. Vitor, fantastic to get your thoughts on a program today. Appreciate your time. Always valuable to us. Vitor Gaspar there of the IMF. No one has studied the cycles of this like Jim Paulson at Luthold Whedon. He's really a student of melding economics into the history of our financial system and the opportunities to take and the minefields to avoid. Jim Paulson joins us now from his uh, Minnesota. Jim Paulson, the courage to be in the market now, as Lisa mentions, the confidence of the CFO. How do you develop confidence to participate in anything except Amazon and Apple? <laughs> yeah, it seems like that on some days, Tom. Um, I, um, you know, I I really think that in, in some ways this is a very you know unique situation we're in. There's no doubt about that. But in some ways, it's also very common to what it feels like at the start of other new expansions and new bull markets. Um, there, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of problems on Main Street. Um, a lot of them seem like they're going to last for a long time, and they probably will. But yet that's the same kind of situation that existed like in 1982 when the market first took off, or in 2009 when it first took off. There was a lot of doubt there, too, and the market went up, and it seemed like it was disconnected from the reality that was main, that was going on on Main Street in both of those cases. And yet, against that wall of fear with massive policy support, that we had in 82 and we had in 2009, the market kept rising and eventually uh, economic conditions on Main Street also improved. It took a long time before we got back to normal. We had elevated unemployment rates well into the late 80s, well into the last expansion. We never really got back to the unemployment rate again uh, until many, many years later. So, you know, we've got a lot of issues today, but I still think we're in a new expansion and a new bull market. Jim, I hear this argument a lot. In fact, I think you're closely aligned with the thoughts of Morgan Stanley that this is normal. The reopening, the recession playbook, it stands. People, as you know, Jim, are pushing back. They'll say there's a structural ceiling to how quickly we can normalize. It's stop, start. It's different. It's not normal. What's your message for them? Well, I I think that you know, there's certainly differences every time, and we've got a big difference here, John. I, I totally agree with that. We've not ever had a pandemic uh, that I've been, you know, studied uh, before, and it, it does have unique characteristics. But, you know, there's been unique characteristics in the past. There was start-stop in the 2009 recovery, too. I mean, we had massive uh, uh, bank failures and brokerage firm failures. And, um, our banking system was totally challenged. Sometimes that looked a little better. Sometimes it looked a little worse. Um, in, 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 in the early 80s, we had basically a depression in energy and agriculture in my home state of Iowa. Um, commodity deflation, uh, that was a lot of start and stop there, too. I don't know if the, the, the specific thing is, is unique to today, but in, in reality, it's pretty common to the past. We The, the real key here is... You don't have to get back to normal before security prices move. They've already moved long before we're back to normal, and they'll 
probably continue to do that. Um, if we can just trend northward in terms of economics, I think that's going to be sufficient, even if it's slow and even if it's start and stop. Well, let's say it's slow and it's start and stop. Let's talk about what you want to own. The rotation into the cyclical areas of this market worked for about five minutes and then really stalled through the month of June. Jim, with the backdrop right now that we're facing, with a week where the dominance of mega cap tech is back on top, how uncomfortable does it feel to pivot away from that story and back to value again, back to the cyclical areas of this market? I don't both, John. I, I own the barbell. I, I, I continue to own new era growth, and I would, I would continue to add exposure in what I'd say the broader market, which to me is cyclical small caps and internationals. Um, and I, I really think on the one hand that there's greater participation going on here than advertised. Yes, it's, done, it's been a narrower market since the June 8th top here. But from the March 23rd low, the Russell 2000 index, the equally weighted S&P 500, and the market cap weighted S&P 500 are all up, are all had risen by about 40%. So there is greater participation here still, still going on. It may not be every week, but I think if, if right now we've got a bearish attitude towards pandemic and reopening, if that turns back to bullishness again, I think we'll see the broader market pick up. In the meantime, your high growth equities are going to continue to do well. I don't really see a bubble yeah. in growth like I saw in 2000. I mean, right now in tech, for example, the forward multiple on S&P 500 techs 27 times. It was 55 times in 2000. Right now, the relative so, P multiple is 1.1 times the S&P. It was two times the S&P. And the reason that people are buying those stocks today is not because they're out over their skis with massive un, you know, bullishness. It's because of defensiveness. They're buying those stocks like they used to buy utility stocks right. well, this, in the tough and, market. And Jim, this has sort of been the argument by a lot of big investors that basically big tech are the stalwarts and are the utilities going forward. On the other hand, if you take a look at who is buying, retail investors are accounting for a greater proportion of total volumes in the equity market in the United States. The head of execution for Citadel coming out yesterday and saying at any given day, uh, there is a one-fifth of all trading activity attributed to these retail investors, which have traditionally been thought of as the dumb money. Do you agree or do you think that they're smarter than the institutions that are being more reticent to pile in? Well, I guess that should have to be, be determined. I, I, don't, I don't believe that the size of the retail run to me um, is, is of a magnitude, I think, that's concerning, like it might have been in earlier periods. And I also... Don't know, Lisa. One, who knows? But I also don't think it's it's backed by you know uh, rabid bullishness and optimism. I think there are people that were looking and using these growth stocks as defensive investment. Now, whether that's going to prove to be accurate, I don't know. But it's it's not something we've done in the past when when we've had this run concentrated run into these big cap tech stocks in the past it's been a signal yeah. of of over bullishness and that just is not evident to me today 
the character of that sector has really changed. Hey, Jim, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. As always, Jim Paulson there of Luthold Whedon. Really fortunate to be joined on the program now by Mohammed Al Arian, Chief Economic Advisor to Allianz and, of course, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Mohammed, we've been following this crisis over the last several months together and it just feels like we're entering something different, a new phase. There's a shift here. What are your thoughts on it? There is, John, and it's really happening in the economy in the U.S. And that is a migration up of layoffs from small and medium-sized companies to larger ones. And that's consequential both for what it says about the demand side, but also what it says about the supply side. And that is a lot of businesses are not buying into the V. They see a different destination regardless of the journey. Dr. O'Larian, Warren Buffett made a T decision this week to invest in a distressed asset. I think what's missing in our analysis on a Friday in July is how businesses, how executives will respond. What are the T decisions CEOs, CFOs and big money is going to make over the next year? So for most businesses, it really comes down to three issues. Is my balance sheet strong enough? A. B, what is demand and revenue going to look like? And C, what is my cost structure going to look like? For the marketplace, there's a really interesting aspect going on because the marketplace has to also incorporate two things. One is the very heavy hand of policy. And secondly, are technicals that have proven very strong but remain delicate. So it's a really interesting configuration um, that we're going to be talking about for a long time, Tom, going forward. But the basic issue is that there's much more fluidity out there, economic and financial, and of course, health-wise, than we've seen for a very long time. Mohammed, what is it about the technicals that you think are delicate right now? So I think what you have is the extension of what has been the former trade, the TINA trade, and the fear of missing out because central banks are our best friends. The TINA, there is no alternative but stocks, but, but certain stocks within that that have become both defensive and growth at the same time. And that has attracted a lot more interest from the retail side. And the retail side has had quite an influence in the last month or so. You know, John, I think more retail participation is very important. It broadens the marketplace. And importantly, it means society buys into a market-based system even more. However, you don't want retail to be the victim of a head fake. And that's what I really worry about. Victim of a head fake. Another way to say this is a bubble. That's what Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates called the tech stocks and the valuations right now there. Do you agree? So I think there's, there's two issues of the head fake. One is to be careful that central bank support does not go all the way down to defaulting companies. Defaults imply capital impairment. And the experience with Hertz where should be one that, that should be put front and center of every retail investor. The second element relates to Rob Arnott's really good interview with you yesterday, which is there is a time when the marketplace thinks in relative terms, and there's a time when it thinks in absolute terms. In relative terms, tech makes absolute sense. They have strong balance sheet, 
positive cash flow, good management, and on the sunny side of both the COVID journey and what's on the other side of the COVID journey. But in absolute terms, look at the valuations. And what I have learned in my experience in the marketplace is that the market can be obsessed with relative values for a very, very long time. And then almost overnight, it shifts to absolute. And that moment can be quite a um, well, jarring moment if you don't realize where you are on valuations. Right. And Mohammed, you've done this with Bill Gross at PIMCO. You know Bill Gross had his famous Monroe Trader on his desk where you're quoting yield, 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 and all of a sudden you go from relative to absolute, and all you're worried about is price, price, price. How close are we in the bond market with where nominal yields are, real yields are, and negative yields are to you flipping from a yield analysis to a price analysis to protect capital? So a lot depends on which part of the bond market. And I think it's really important to distinguish, Tom. And let me start with a story that was often told at PIMCO, which is the person who comes home and says, look, I bought a dog for $30,000. And his wife says, are you crazy? You spent $30,000 for a dog? And, and he answers, yeah, great deal. The cat was selling for 40,000, right? There's a point at which relative trades don't make sense. I think you're going to see this in high yield. You're going to see this in emerging market corporates. You're going to see that in certain sovereign emerging markets. You're not going to see it higher up in the capital structure because central banks have and will continue to influence those yields and those spreads. So people have got to be much more careful into how they treat the bond market. It is very different when you get near default risk. Mohammed, you've got to be careful. Otherwise, people listening to this might think that people at PIMCO actually bought $30,000 dogs. And I'm sure that maybe, maybe that wasn't the case. Mohammed, you mentioned EM a couple of times then. They certainly didn't. (laughs) PIMCO is and always has been a very fundamental driven shop. Right. John, John, I paid $32,000 for vet bill. I'm sorry. Which is why you call him Vet Bill, I'm sure, because of the cost, Tom. Mohammed, you mentioned DM a couple of times there, didn't you? And I just think that it wasn't by accident. Are you concerned about the valuations in emerging markets? I am. I think people don't realize how tough it is for the typical emerging market. Phase one was simply dealing with the spillover from what was happening in China, what was happening in Europe and the US, which is lower exports, lower commodity prices, lower tourism, lower foreign direct investment. Phase two is dealing with their own COVID outbreaks. If you look at what's happening in Latin America, it is tragic. If you're looking at parts of what's happening in Africa, it is tragic. So the demand on their resources and the need to divert more resources to the healthcare system is just gonna go up. And I think that people don't realize that there is, to quote my colleagues at Gramercy, a paradigm of non-payments coming up for certain emerging market credits. A paradigm of non-payments, the idea that perhaps some of the sovereign debt could get written down. And we've seen some of that from the IMF so far. Where are we in that? How much do you think uh, the sovereign debt of developing markets could get written down ultimately? So we've seen ongoing with Ecuador, with Argentina, that's that uh, market-based solutions. Like you say, we've seen the IMF and the World Bank work with the G20 on a debt service suspension initiative for the poorest countries. And they've made it very clear that they expect burden sharing. 
Um, the issue is, as you know, Lisa, it is not easy to dictate burden sharing from a top-down perspective. And that's where the IMF and the World Bank are struggling in finding a way for private sector involvement, as they call it, PSI. I think it's going to come. I think when countries go from immediate emergency assistance to wanting longer-term support from these institutions, one of the requirements is going to be burden sharing. And I don't think creditors quite realize that that's going to migrate up from the low, lowest income countries to some, not all, some of the middle income emerging markets as well. Mohammed, when people say burden sharing right now, we think of Europe and the fiscal talks that are set to take place later this month. You have really pushed back over the last year, maybe longer. When people have come on programs like this and talked about pivoting away from America and American assets towards Europe and the continent, What's the pushback now? So I think we're getting closer, John. I think we've learned once again that it takes a crisis to move Europe. And what you're seeing happening in Europe is, I think, an important moment. So I must say that I'm really encouraged by what's going on in Europe right now. Um, It'd be important to see how these negotiations proceed. Um, There are people that countries are still resistant, but on the whole, I think they're going to get to a better place. And I told you that the time will come to fade the U.S. in favor of Europe. We're getting much closer to that. I would not fade the U.S. in favor of emerging markets, though. Mohammed, always appreciate your time. Thank the family for us, won't you? I know it's super early on the West Coast, and this is a disruption for the Alarian household as well. Mohammed, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Mohammed Alarian there of Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, Chief Economic Advisor to Allianz. This is a joy, and on a Friday, given the pandemic and the carnage economically across the nation, it is good to speak to someone authoritative from a firm that owns the franchise. That would be Cowan and company. Not only with Kaivon Rumor, the legendary airline analyst, the Boeing analyst, but also with Helene Becker, Cowan truly owns the high ground on airline analysis. We're thrilled that Ms. Becker could join us uh, this morning. Helene, I want to cut to the chase and the headlines. I know you've done this. Calculate how many people would become unemployed across the American aviation business. Yeah, so at the start of the year, there were 750,000 people employed in aviation, and we estimate that by the end of the year, there will only be between 550 and 600,000 people employed. So somewhere between 150 and 200,000 people will lose their jobs, um, you know, in the fourth quarter of this year. Helene, we caught up several months ago, you and I were talking at just how depressing some of these numbers would be for the business. Can you just walk me through what the industry looks like right now? What's booking look like? What does capacity load factors look like on some of these planes, some of these routes? Yeah, so, um, so we're better than we thought we'd be. When we caught up the first time, we thought we'd have, by August 1st, about 400,000 people traveling. And that was based on the 87,000 people at the Nader. So on April 14th, TSA screened 87,000 people versus a normal day when they would screen about two and a half million. So you see the 95% decline there. And then now um, we're screening about, on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Saturdays, we're screening between 600 and 650,000 people. 
And on the peak four days, so that would be Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Monday, we're screening, you know, between 700 and 750,000 people. So that's a faster recovery than we were expecting. Um, and that's without business travel and really without international travel. W- without those two, we don't think traffic can really exceed a million um, by the end of the year, and that's our forecast by the, the holidays, December holidays. We have a million people going through um, GSA every day. With, without business and without international, where are people going? Domestic. That's, that's actually a really good question. Um, so it's visiting friends. So, so the people who are traveling, visiting friends and relatives, leisure, and people who absolutely have to travel. So those like 80-some-odd thousand people we saw in April were people who were traveling because they were probably rated, related, doing work related to the pandemic. Now you have people um, where states have opened up and where, like Universal and Orlando and SeaWorld opened earlier in June, you have people starting to take vacations to those locations now. Um, whether that continues given the rampant um, level of, of coronavirus that we're seeing in those states you know, remains to be seen. Disney's supposed to open, Disney Orlando is supposed to open tomorrow. Um, you know, obviously new rules, but that's what's happening. It's, it's the Florida beaches, it's western states with um, national parks. You know, we're seeing a lot of outdoor activities. All right, Helene. So given the fact that we're not expecting to see demand for international or business pick up to the levels that we'd seen earlier in the year until perhaps 2025, according to industry projections, how many airlines do you think have to go out of business to right size to sort of uh, correct the oversupply of seats and flights that we have currently in the market? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think the way the government set it up in the short term is none of the airlines will go out of business, but the amount of capacity that will come out of the network, so, so we've said between 800 and 1,000 aircraft will not have been parked and will not come back, um, you know, after, in, in, let's say by, by uh, this time next year. So um, when you think about the <clears throat> level of capacity, that's, a, that's equal to an air, right. the size of one full airline. Helene, give me buy, hold, sell here. Give me the single best idea three years, five years out. Which management's going to be most opportunistic and add shareholder value when we get through this, this tragedy? Yeah, so Southwest is, is probably our best idea in the short term um, just because they've, they've got net cash. Um, they're really well positioned. They, they did a huge cash grab earlier this year, about $13 billion worth of liquidity. Um, they've paid down their 364-day term loan. We think they're really well positioned to get share in every recession since I've covered this group, which is more than three decades, and they've grown share. So I think that's like our number one idea. Um, our big contrarian idea, the one that you know we get a lot of pushback on, is American because we don't think they're going out of business. They've raised a ton of cash. Um, they still have some assets that they can raise. They don't have any debt due before 2022. They paid down their 364-day term loan that was due next year. So they're not in bad, you know, shape right now. And um, so I think those would be, you know, one very contrarian and, and kind of out there and the other, you know, more of a um, quote-unquote safety idea. Very contrarian, given the borrowing costs. Helene, I always enjoy catching <laughs> exactly. up with you. Fantastic to get your insights on this program. Helene Becker there of Cowan. And Helene is always so compassionate about the workers that make up some of these companies. This industry 
is really going to struggle, yeah, Tom, true. for a long, long time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.